This is your public radio station for more than 37 years, KUAF 91.3. And this is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, May 17th, 2022. I'm Timothy Dennis. And I'm Matthew Moore. On today's show, we explore some of the jargon one might encounter during this year's election. We have an excerpt from the latest edition of Natural Election, a podcast from KUAF and Ozarks at Large. That's in about eight minutes. And we hear about an upcoming class at the University of Arkansas that will explore how the rise of digital music platforms has altered the economics of and representation in the music business. That's in our second half hour. First on today's show, last month, the River Valley Adult Learning Alliance in Dardanelle made history by being the first small town to receive a partnership with the Mexican consulate to promote educational opportunities. The Educational Window Program, or La Ventanilla Educativa, will aid Mexican-born individuals in accessing diplomas from Mexico and provide help for traditionally underserved communities for all things education. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith spoke to Alejandro Reyes and Meredith Martin-Motes, co-directors for the Alliance, who said the program is for everyone and has served as a bridge between communities in the town. For example, they came from Mexico and they don't have their their birth certificate or their high school diploma or middle school diploma, any diploma for education. We're going to be directly calling and getting it in here for them. Not just from it, another thing that is really interesting about this is not just from Dardanelle, Arkansas, not just from for Arkansas is for Tennessee and Oklahoma. All the needs of those three, these three states. We're going to be serving. So and the other big part is uh, informing the community of the of all the resources that we have for education. Like not uh, here, we're not just talking about from Mexico, from United States. For example, when a parent from Mexico is called to go to the court because his kid learned, lost 10.5 days of school and they don't have a translator, don't know what to do. They can come to us and we can tell them what is going on, and probably help them to call the court. No get with them, no, but help them in the transition. Other good example can be like kids that are in, that has an IOP. Sometimes the Spanish parents don't understand what is an IOP. So if they call us and to find out, we're going to be able. All that has to do with education. And of course, has connections with the schools, with the with all the schools, with the universities around him, and all the entities and nonprofit organizations and profit organizations that offer help for the students. Why is it important to have a program like this that highlights inclusivity as one of its main objectives and principles? Well, I mean, I think one of the, the things that we're so excited about is Dardanelle is the first small town to ever have a program like this. And one of the reasons, you know, that it makes so much sense is, you know, Dardanelle schools, Dardanelle community is, is 30 to 40 percent Spanish speaking um, as a community. You know, we are a community of English and Spanish speakers like that is just like daily life here. And so it's really important because it kind of reflects the community that's here. This is what home looks like for us. And we're really excited. We were saying that it's the first um, small town. And I, I grew up in Dardanelle. I've, been, I've left at 18 and then came back many years later. It's really exciting to see Dardanelle become this place that is all about inclusion and all about um, be- becoming bilingual. Like I, I, one of the things we talk about all the time is our community is increasingly um, is increasingly bilingual and we really want to support that. It's, uh, it's an image of rural America that a lot of people don't understand or know, but it's very, very real. <laughs> 
first small town to receive a partnership such as this. What was the process like of securing this deal um, and forming this partnership, especially with a town the size of Dardanelle? Part of it is we were kind of already doing a lot of the work. And I think the partnership made sense. Our, our background, like as an organization, is we're a literacy, basically a literacy council, but we've really tried to kind of push the boundaries of what that means. And basically we work pretty much with any adult on any kind of learning uh, need that they might have. So when Alejandra came on as co-director, you know, one of the things that she was doing all the time was helping all kinds of, all kinds of translation, helping people get the resources that they needed. And so kind of was a natural fit, but I'll let you tell them how you kind of secured the deal. This, and that's a question that really touched for me because I have been working for this Plaza Comunitaria. I was just one the Plaza Comunitaria. That don't came with any resource, anything. You just, because I want people get education. If they don't know how to read in Spanish, they are never going to be able to translate that to the English language. So to me, that was, a. am so passionate about that. And since 10 years ago, I has been working on this. Mm-hmm. I never take the, the hand out of, can you give us this? Can you give us this? <laughs> and finally, thanks God, there was the space when people that understand the needs of small community areas, rural areas, uh, of, not just of Arkansas, but this is gonna be a model to follow because mm-hmm. if we can get the all these rural areas, the Mexican consulate, and the Mexican gov- government in Mexico going to see, well, probably we need to do give two, two ventanillas educativas, one for big cities and one for small cities. I don't know. The possibilities are endless. But we're beginning something in here that is so important. So how we close the deal, they really see what we do working. They know out there in the world what we do, not just me, but Meredith. We was in the right time with the right people that understand the needs of, of our community. But I want it for Darnell, for Joe Connie, because this, this is my home for my kids. What has been the community response to the initiation of this program? And has anybody <laughs> said, you know, are we looking forward to this? What has that response been like? I mean, I think people have been really excited and I think, um, yeah, very, very supportive. And I think one of the things that's been really neat is um, since we've been in the media and talking about this, we've had more uh, English speakers will come up to me and be like, I want to learn. I need to learn Spanish. I've been wanting to learn Spanish forever. And we'll be like, well, we have the class. We'll We'll hook you right up. So I've noticed that in the English speaking community, people are really excited to, to figure out like how they can get more involved. And we we invite you to come and um, and to check it out and to also um, and to pay attention to some of the stuff that's not just happening here, but in other uh, rural communities across um, the and South. The needs. the needs. Yeah. And, you know, like there's so many misconceptions about what rural life in Arkansas looks like. And in Yale County, especially uh, rural life in Arkansas is, is multicultural, and multilingual. You know, we just invite people to come take part and learn more about what's going on here. And, and, and we would love to form partnerships because like Alejandra was saying, like we're doing this for our community because we care so much about it, but also we're hoping to develop models that can be useful for people in other places that they can, you know, then take and, and make it work whatever their home looks like. So yeah, come come visit us. And the other thing that I want to, I'm not bragging, I'm gonna say, I just want to, to the people really uh, know the importance of this Ventanilla Educativa. It's only one Ventanilla Educativa in Arkansas. 
and other people want it from other bigger towns mm. and they give it to us. And don't give it to us because I'm a really good friend with them. They give it to us because they see our, the work that Meredith and I has been done with the community. We're gonna do what we have to do to make it happen if it's in our hands. That was Alejandra Reyes and Meredith Martin Motes, co-directors at the River Valley Adult Learning Alliance in Dardanelle, Arkansas. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. A program of local speakers will discuss the expanding role of the region's Asian American and Pacific Islander cultures from 2 to 4 p.m. on Sunday, May 22nd, at the Shiloh Museum of Ozark History in Springdale. The panel discussion is sponsored by the Washington County Historical Society through its Diverse Settlers Committee, led by Margaret Clark. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. When caring for a seriously ill loved one, the journey shouldn't be taken alone. Circle of Life Hospice can help. Services are covered by Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurance. No one is turned away based on an inability to pay. 750-6632 or nwacircleoflife.com for information. This is Ozarks at Large. We're one week away from Election Day in Arkansas, and it can start to feel like the lead up to that big test you've been procrastinating on studying for. Natural Election is here to help. The podcast is a production of KUAF and Ozarks at Large, and this week, Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth walks us through some of the strange titles you'll see on the ballot. One of the biggest challenges voters face is election jargon. The words we encounter at the polls can often trip up even the most engaged of citizens. So I'm going to run through a few terms you might encounter that could be a bit confusing. Let's start with some of the positions that you're voting for. You'll likely know the high-profile positions like governor, state representative, senator, attorney general. But there are a few that you may see on the ballot that could leave you scratching your head. One you'll likely see is Commissioner of State Lands, or the Land Commissioner. This is one statewide position that essentially oversees state-owned property. They also have authority over certain historic preservation initiatives and the leasing of natural resources on state-owned land. Another commonly misunderstood position is Justice of the Peace. And these aren't glorified wedding officiants, but rather members of your quorum court, the legislative body for a county government. The justices meet monthly and are in charge of carrying out county-level duties like levying taxes, appropriating public funds, filling county office vacancies, and other administrative tasks. That leads to another confusing title, the county judge. So not a judge in the law and order sense, these officials essentially act as the chief executive officer of a county. They preside over the quorum court and are the custodians of county property and public buildings. Some other peculiar words come up before you even mark your ballot, like a ward, electoral districts that are determined by where you live in a town or city and used for local elections, or precincts, a further subdivision of an electoral district, often determining polling locations. Then there are terms like ballot measure, which is just a law, question, or issue that's put to a voter that you can approve or reject. For example, a bond issue when a government asks for voter approval for additional spending, often for a municipality 
or school district. This list isn't comprehensive, and the terms can be tricky. So I called up an expert to see how voters can ease some of that confusion and stay in the know. So my name is Kayla Fletcher, um, and I currently am the Education Program Coordinator at the Arkansas PBS station. And before her job with Arkansas PBS, Kayla taught civics with Virtual Arkansas. I took my first teaching position um, in May of 2016, and so that fall in August was not only my very first um, full-time teaching my own students, um, it was also an election year, and that semester I was teaching civics. And so I knew that I, I wanted to do something impactful, and I'm not sure a lot of people know, but in Arkansas, civics is typically taught at the ninth grade level. And personally, um, it makes it a little difficult to teach, you know, 14, sometimes 15-year-olds the importance of something like voting when they're not going to do it for four to five years. Um, and so I knew I wanted to make make it as relatable as possible. And so um, the wheels kind of started spinning on how do I um, how do I teach them during an election year and, and connect it to civics and the standards that we're required to teach and make it impactful and, and teach them to really understand and hopefully it be something that they carry with them when it's time for them to actually vote. She says teaching during the 2016 election led her to develop a toolkit for her middle and high school students that walked them through the voting process and one for parents and teachers on how to break down the elections and civics in a relatable way. I think sometimes just political words in general can be confusing, especially depending on the education that they had growing up. Um, And sometimes I think as adults, we, especially uh, probably politicians, they use these fancy words that aren't broken down. Even just using words, like I know a lot of us like to assume that like we know what democracy or a democratic process means, but it's really not as as simple as that. And so I think sometimes if we uh, took a step back and explained what we, some of us may consider to be a very commonly used and understood word. If, if someone said, you know, this is what a democracy is, and this is what that the role that that plays in your voting, and this is why your vote can essentially matter, I think, I think again, it's going to potentially make people feel more comfortable knowing what is needed to place their vote. Um, I don't think you have to know every topic. I don't think you have to know every politician. I think it really is just being given the knowledge to empower yourself to then research further. And she says the basics of teaching civics doesn't actually change that much from students to adults. In fact, she thinks adults may be less inclined to get informed out of anxiety or embarrassment. One of the major problems, she says, is that voters don't often talk about the things we don't know. It kind of goes back to being in school where nobody wants to ask the hard question because they don't want to look stupid or silly or less than or not as knowledgeable. And so I think you're right. I think it's going to take people getting out and saying, hey, I didn't know this or I don't know this. Anybody else? And so if we can start to provide that type of platform for people to also say, oh, I didn't I didn't know that either. And if we can then teach each other, because we can learn so much from each other if we have conversations, um, if we can teach each other and empower each other, then there's going to be more people that, at the very least, feel more comfortable taking themselves to the polls and voting. So if there's a word or position you don't understand come May 24th, don't be afraid to ask. The odds are you aren't the only one in the dark. 
You can find those voter toolkits called Assemble at myarkansaspbs.org slash civics. And for more on specific definitions and the history of some of those Arkansas elected offices, you can visit encyclopediaofarkansas.net. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth co-hosts Natural Election and produces from the Karen Taha News Studio. You can find the whole study guide episode of Natural Election today on your podcast distributor of choice. The Artisphere Festival Orchestra returns to Walton Arts Center with two main stage concerts under the baton of maestro Corrado Rivera's, featuring more than 90 premier musicians from around the world. Presenting works by Piazzolla, Martucci, and Mendelssohn on May 23rd, and an evening of Strauss and Stravinsky, May 27th. Tickets and more at artisphereFestival.org. Washington Regional awarded the highest score possible in the spring 2022 Leapfrog Hospital Safety Grades, offers compassionate quality health care while prioritizing patient safety, continuously growing to meet the changing needs of the community. Washington Regional, nationally recognized care, here for you. Active cases of COVID-19 in Arkansas are up nearly 500 from the same time last week, but hospitalizations have not risen to the same degree. That's according to Dr. Jennifer Dillahay, director of the Arkansas Department of Health. She says the state is monitoring the number of people with long COVID who have symptoms of COVID-19 months or years after initially contracting the virus. It happens more frequently in people who haven't been vaccinated compared to people who have been vaccinated. But there are some folks out there that will have long-term disability as a result of COVID, and those numbers are increasing, and we are very concerned about that. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, there are no current tests to accurately diagnose long COVID, making it difficult to track. Last year, the condition of long COVID was classified as a disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Dillahay recommends a full series of vaccinations and booster shots for preventing serious illness and long COVID. Join Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art and KUAF Public Radio for the 8th annual live performance, Mozart in the Museum, May 19th, beginning at 7 p.m., with the performance presented live on 91.3 FM. Music director Corrado Rivera's and the Artisphere Festival Orchestra will perform Mozart's Overture to La Clemenza de Tito, his Piano Concerto No. 23, featuring Van Cliburn Competition Laureate pianist Benedetto Lupo, and will complete the performance with Mozart's Symphony No. 39. Tickets to the performance at Crystal Bridges, available through the Walton Arts Center. Mozart at the Museum, May 19th, beginning at 7 p.m., and heard live on your public radio station, KUAF. This is Ozarks at Large. The latest round of polling for Talk Business in Hendricks College assessed likely voters' attitudes regarding several races in the Arkansas primary election. Roby Brock from Talk Business talked this week with Jay Barth, political science professor emeritus from Hendricks College, and Robert Kuhn, a managing partner at Impact Management Group, to discuss some of these poll results. They begin their conversation with an assessment of the Republican primary race for U.S. Senate. We hear first from Robert Kuhn. I think John Bozeman is likely to get over 50 percent. Sitting at 45, if you look at what's left in the undecided, he just is a hop, skip and a jump from getting there. Uh, I, you know, I think this this kind of anti 
uh, incumbent feel has been out in the Republican primary for a number of cycles back when Jan Morgan ran against Asa Hutchinson and even Curtis Coleman against John Bozeman several years ago. It's never really gotten more than 25, 30 percent. I think we're probably going to see it get a little higher this time. It's hard for me to see that that group get more than 50 percent. And Beckett, does he have a legitimate gripe about his name being wrong on a couple of ballots in some counties around the state? Well, I think anytime there's a mistake like that, you have a you have a gripe. I think it's legitimate in those counties and with those county officials there where the mistake was made. I think um, clearly the secretary of state's office and the attorney general who he both kind of brought into this deal claiming voter fraud. I think that was just. You know, that sensationalism tries to get you a little bit more media coverage. I mean, I think legitimate claim in the counties where it's happened, but, you know, it's certainly not the responsibility of the people that he called out. All right. Jay Barth, what's your take on the Senate Republican primary there? Tell me what you expect to happen on Election Day. Yeah, I do think Central Bozeman is going to get over 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 50 percent, probably not a lot over. And he has had to work really hard. It's been a lot of money to get there. And I do think that shows uh, an atmosphere that uh, was always challenging for him. We saw that back in polling, you know, in his favorable, unfavorables, you know, uh, months ago. And and we were, we were, uh, uh, I think, wary about his, uh, his primary uh, uh, standing, but he, things have turned out about as expected as he's been able to find a way to probably eke it out. Uh, but, uh, but he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a weak candidate, uh, but he's about to be a weak three-term, uh, Senator, uh, because he is, uh, gonna clearly win in the fall after he gets through this primary. So I think that's where things are right now. Um, I, I do think the, the battle for second place, uh, you know, a lot of money's been spent on, on Beckett's behalf as well. Uh, and he may not finish uh, second. Uh, and I think that does show some kind of grassroots uh, support out there for, for Jan Morgan. And if the turnout is really, really low, which I think it is going to be very low, that I could see a grassroots candidate really kind of overperforming in a, in a very small electorate. All right, let's go to the Democrats for the U.S. Senate. Natalie James, 17, Dan Whitfield, 15, Jack Foster, 5, 63% undecided. Jay, I'll let you go first as you're the Democrat here. Um, Who's going to be the Democratic nominee for the U.S. Senate? Undecided can't win that race. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's not Nevada, which uh, does allow none of the above to to win uh, elections. Um, It, uh, you know, I... It's it's very unclear. I mean, it's it's really just a, a coin flip uh, of an of an election, and and I there's just really not much knowledge because none of these candidates have the resources to actually uh, reach out to voters and explain who they are, much less what they stand for. Um, and so it really does become down to you know just some name recognition, uh, limited name recognition. Dan Whitfield may have a little bit of an advantage there, and that his name has been out there in political circles for a while. But I think Natalie James has an advantage as uh, as a as a black candidate and as a woman in a in a disproportionately female electorate on the on the Democratic side. But you know, I, you know, sadly, uh, whoever wins this thing is it's going to be a, a probably a pretty brutal uh, fall uh, with uh, with the incumbent senator likely to to prevail pretty soundly. All right, Robert Kuhn, who do the Republicans want in that Senate, out of that Senate primary? Are they licking their chops for one or the other or the other? I don't think it really matters. I think whoever the Republican candidate is, is going to win that election um, in November. I, 
I tend to think that Jay's point about a, a more female electorate probably leans towards uh, Natalie uh, in that race, just because the Democratic primary more so even than the, the overall electorate kind of trends more female. So maybe give her the edge on that. But I but I do think it's probably a toss up. All right. I'm going to pull these next two uh, next two responses together into one question here. We've got Sarah Huckabee Sanders running away with the Republican primary in our polling seven over 72 percent. Same thing for Chris Jones on the Democratic side. He's uh, pushing 60 percent on there. Clearly, it's going to set up a Chris Jones versus Sarah Huckabee general election. Uh, Robert, I'll come to you first on this. What what did you see in those numbers for Sarah Huckabee? What did you see in those numbers for Chris Jones? Well, I think they're you know they're clearly the front runner. Sarah Huckabee Sanders' numbers amongst Republicans are you know astronomical. I mean, they're they're very similar in a lot of ways, both in this survey and other surveys I've seen to to Donald Trump's numbers when it comes to self-identified Republicans. And and she even is you know generally um, supported and, and seen as favorable amongst independents uh, that vote Republican. So you know her, she's she's definitely built to win this primary. I think she's. Definitely the front runner, you know, in the in the general election. Uh, Chris Jones has, you know, the, really the only candidate to emerge on the Democratic side that has any base of support. Um, I don't think any of the other candidates in that in the in the poll were above five percent. So I mean, he is the only one with the resources, the only one that has generated some name ID. Um, you know, that being said, in a general electorate, I mean, he's still by far, you know, the the underdog in that race. You know, I think he's a smart, talented person. We'll see what kind of campaign they can put together, but but definitely, you know, going to be playing from behind. Uh, Jay, I'll get your take on that same question for Robert, but also give me a little perspective on the historical context here. The winner, if it turns out to be Sarah Huckabee Sanders is on the R side, Chris Jones on the D side. Arkansas is going to make history in their next governor, no matter what, African-American candidate or female candidate. Yeah, I mean, uh, Arkansas has not had a, uh, an elected uh, statewide official who's African-American uh, in its history. Uh, there were a couple of appointees back in the Reconstruction era. Uh, and then, of course, never a woman elected governor, although uh, women have been elected statewide uh, to the U.S. Senate. Uh, and a number of other races. So this is this is a historic uh, race. I do think that Chris Jones gets a lot of credit for uh, really coalescing uh, Democratic support uh, quite quite well. Um, he was not that well known among Democrats uh, just you know eight or eight or nine months ago. I do think that opener ad uh, was very that went viral. Really put him on the map very quickly and just kind of uh, coalesce support. He has uh, had some fundraising success, but he is certainly going to be uh, outgunned pretty significantly. I think they they were hoping there would be more national investment in that race by national Democrats uh, uh, wanting to uh, beat Sarah Huckabee Sanders. But there's so much going on and defense and, and Democrats are having to play defense in so many places in the country. It really hasn't worked out that way so far. Um, he's going to need some polling uh, in the coming months that shows there's a sliver of a chance to to get him back on the map. That was Jay Barth and Robert Kuhn speaking this week with Roby Brock from our content partner, Talk Business and Politics. You can find the entire conversation at their website, talkbusiness.net.
The latest edition of Resilient Black Women, a podcast from KUAF that's hosted by Joy McGowan and Denisha Simpson, focuses on the concept of black joy. We're going to hear an excerpt of that episode, and we pick up the conversation with Joy explaining how black joy is vulnerable, especially when it's easier to hold on to fear. It's easier. It's safer. Yes. It almost feels safer. Yes. Like Mm -hmm. if I keep thinking about all the things that could happen, Mm -hmm. I'm in some way preparing myself for the worst. Right. This guard can protect me, right? But Mm -hmm. if I don't think it's there or recognize it or identify it, then those bad things can come on in. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I I think black joy in and of itself is... Man, it is, you know, you hear on social media, right? People say, like, this is part of the resistance. This is part of the revolution. Like, it literally is a way for us to say, like, I will not give in to -hmm. these messages of black trauma and black pain Mm -hmm. all the time. There is so much more to who we are than just our pain. Mm -hmm. And, And now I'm learning, like, man, how do I teach that to my kids? How do I help them? grow with a healthy sense of self that they can have joy and be safe. Right. Because joy is nourishment. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need that. As a black community, we definitely need that. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot happened during the pandemic for us with George yeah. Floyd and Ahmaud, all those things. And so um, I think part of black joy is to coming together mm-hmm. and connecting And just to even see that in communities, um, like the Black Joy Parade. And I know you're going to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. Okay. I didn't even know that was a thing, first of all. (laughs) I was like, what? (laughs) There was a Black Joy Parade in California. And so I think it happened in 2020. I think they've been doing it ever since. But it was a Black Joy Parade Mm -hmm. in California. And when I saw it, I don't know if you've seen the documentary by Questlove. So Questlove won an Oscar um, for this documentary that he did about a festival that happened like in 69, because it was when we landed on the moon. It was the day that the U.S. landed on the moon. And they had this festival that was all about like black music, this black music festival. And it was so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And so when I saw that documentary, I thought about the Black Joy Mm -hmm. uh, Festival they had in California in 2020. And I'm like, wow. And so Mm -hmm. from the documentary, uh, Questlove just pointed out how they tried to, like, get this um, festival. Like, they had recorded everything. And they tried to get it, like, on national TV somewhere and, like, get people to, like, buy it. Nobody in mainstream wanted to buy it. And mm-hmm. nobody like was like, oh, what is this? Like black people? And and the guy who recorded, he's like, I even try to like name it something different, <laughs> like, right. not just like what this like black music festival is. Like, I, he like named it something totally different mm-hmm. to like mimic something that like white people had already done mm-hmm. at that time. And he's like, still nothing, like nothing. And so Questlove is interviewing people who had performed or new performers who were there on that day, and you're watching these people like cry Mm -hmm. looking at what they did and they're like that really was awesome like that was a really good day like Mm -hmm. we did do that this was a this was revolutionary for us to do this Mm -hmm. and it was it was in new york city was packed that was beautiful the most beautiful thing i've ever seen um but i thought about that and i was like man that is what the Black Joy Parade must have been like yeah. <laughs> in 2020. I wish I could have been there. <laughs> I know. Like, what is this? And I think what we continue to see, um, 
like in the in the black community, in a black social media community, like a black Twitter, is you know there's these threads that go on of like black girl magic mm-hmm. or black boy joy or black men laughing, and mm-hmm. I'm like, I remember after uh, George Floyd, like I just saw lots of videos of like how do we show black men doing something other than. Um, just circling these videos Mm -hmm. of black men dying by police. And I remember that was like so contagious Mm -hmm. to see, just to see a black man laughing, laughing with a group of other black men or laughing by himself or smiling. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, you just don't realize like how important that is. Or even seeing them with their daughters, right? Yeah, with COVID. Sort of vulnerability with like the, what was it, hashtag black girl dad or something like that? Hashtag girl Girl dad. dad. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that that came out of Kobe, yes, the, it because did. of like how Kobe lived his mm-hmm. life mm-hmm. with his daughters, of like supporting his daughters. And then right. when I remember when he died, everybody's like, "I'm a girl dad too." Yes. And you just see all these pictures, mm-hmm. and and because he Kobe was a black man, you what we really saw was a lot of pictures of black men, right, with their little girls and loving them and. And just to see dads like dads. down on the ground letting their daughters yes. put makeup on them, right? <laughs> or painting their nails. Like, you know, that's a vulnerability that we don't always, and a soft side that we don't always get to see in, Not in mainstream black media. Not in black men. Mm-hmm. No. Especially in a, t- in a time where black men feel like they have to be, they also have to be strong, right? right. <laughs> we talk about Absolutely. strong black women. And oftentimes black men feel like they have to be strong mm-hmm. for themselves, for their for their kids, for their their spouses. Um, so black joy, black joy is huge. That was Joy McGowan and Denisha Simpson, co-hosts of the KUAF podcast, Resilient Black Women. You can hear the full conversation wherever you get your podcasts. This is Ozarks at Large. KUAF is supported by Entertainment Fort Smith, a monthly magazine with a comprehensive calendar of events covering live performances, dining, home design, lifestyles, and people profiles. Available at over 200 locations and on the web at efortsmith.com. Scott Family Amazium in Bentonville offers playful exploration of the arts and sciences through new daily experiences and activities for the family. The Amazium is open every day except Tuesdays. Amazium.org to discover more. This is Ozarks at Large. The rise of digital music platforms means musicians and fans can connect all around the world. What this means for culture, the economy, and representation will be examined in a class next fall at the University of Arkansas called Music and Globalization. Ozarks at Large's Kyle Kellums recently talked with the instructors of the class, Nicola Radon and Jake Herzog. That could be from the anthropology to uh, not only history, but, uh, but actually how a s- society works today. And... Uh, where where do we go with uh, what is the future? I got actually a question a couple of days ago from one student who studied science, and he he was generally kind of uh, learning all the all the history musical of the Western world and some of the non-Western world, and he said like, "What do you think? What is going to be future of, of, of the music?" Well, who can say that? Yeah. Well, we did not change the music so much since actually 20th century. We still live in the 20th century in a way. But we have now um, more actually uh, uh, 
global or non-Western music approach that we see that actually is booming in the the Western world. And as well, we can find the music uh, genres that basically take in some of these beats or the... Uh, so it's basically it's good to s- search the music in the the where basically how how did it come how did it came here, mm-hmm. what what was basically who brought it, how it actually uh, became a now phenomenon of the uh, s- a s- certain type of beat from the you know Latin American. Uh, what's called with the despacito? I mean, like that that, that <laughs> typical beat that, that reggaeton. you hear, reggaeton, yes. <laughs> yeah. How and so on. I mean, the roots are much deep, much uh, longer, and and basically critically also we can go on exploitation of the. I was going to ask about that. Yeah. Yeah, of the music and see basically, and that could be very very interesting to uh, analyze from the dis- different perspectives rather than actually by t- t- what notes are used <laughs> in a certain music. Well, we've come up against a really interesting moment here in, in the 21st century where such an extraordinary number of people have the means and the opportunity to participate in their in the construction of our culture. And that is that is truer with music now than it's ever been. Uh, and so that's going on on one side. And on the other side, we have a, a sort of tightly controlled globalized music industry that's tied in with film, that's tied in with social media, that's tied in with uh, all sorts of the ways that we experience all of that culture. Uh, and so it, it creates a really interesting moment in the history of the world for creators to say that there's more opportunity than there's ever been. And that opportunity is no longer confined to what a small group of mostly American and British record companies put out between 1950 and 1990. Right. Um, so we've, we've crossed that boundary now in a really interesting way, but I don't think we've, we've really processed what it all means yet. And, and I think that a course like this seeks to examine some of that in our current moment and figure out, um, you know, open that dialogue in terms of how, how, how can we move forward from here? What is, what is good about that? What is, what is not good about that? Um, and what does that mean for people who are music creators? What does that mean for people who are music fans and, and so on? It sounds as if what the, the subject you're going to be talking about, music and technology are inseparable, the relationship. Absolutely. And we can think about the the history of music as a history of the technologies on which we consume music. And and so when we think about the ancient times to to about the invention of the printing press as this era of um, music patronage, you know, musicians in in almost every culture needed patrons to survive in some sense, to subsidize the music. And then once we get the printing press, that's the first big technology where musicians can own something, mm-hmm. <laughs> own something outside of the temporal moment of their music. And, and of course, the, the, some of the European societies invented those copyright laws first and so on. You know about the next bit, which is the era of music broadcasting. Right. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, that was another uh, enormous advance. And the era of the recorded music industry, which oddly enough came last – uh, which is sort of the root of some of the copyright issues musicians face today. 
that was like the heyday of of the music business. You know, when people say they look back and they say, "Yeah, that was the good music business," <laughs> and it was because we had these phonographs and CDs and cassettes. And now, I mean, music streaming, music digitization—that's the next evolution. And that's the first time where it's made music more difficult to monetize in right. some sense. Let's talk a bit, just a bit about the cultural side because we can have exposure. Can that exposure to non-Western music change something besides our music consumption? Just what we listen to? I mean, can it have a societal change? Can it move a needle on something? Sure, hope so. I mean, back at the end of at the end of World War II, we sent musicians all over the place in this part of this soft diplomacy, cultural diplomacy. Um, even the University of Illinois jazz band went to Europe and <laughs> and so on to to kind of spread that um, uh, spread that message. So so my hope is that absolutely this should be this should have some net positive effect somewhere. True. Uh, uh, I mean, yes, uh, there are many sam- uh, examples in, from the past that can be seen, uh, you know, from jazz or from other uh, style of music. Uh, well, there's so many things like uh, when the when the Western musicians for the for, uh, composers from the end of the 19th century for the first time heard non-Western music sound and that they started actually to kind of use their, in their music, Debussy starting, like from the Impressionism period, obsessed with the, with the Gamelon orchestra from uh, Bali, Indonesia. I mean, like that's the, something that uh, uh, was booming and then created completely new movements in the, in the art forms and of, of, of music and influence so many other things. Why not today? Why not to actually? I, I certainly expect actually there will be some uh, changes in, in for goods. Also, very important not to lose the actually the tradition. Right. That's the big question. We will live in a global village, but then if you uh, kill the, <laughs> to use the term, kill uh, the 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 roots of the of the the tra- one tradition, then basically you are lo- losing the language. Will you play music for? I mean, will you have examples of music in this class? Plan is actually to yes, we can uh, exemplify, the, bring the samples, but also the plan is uh, to bring some guests. Uh, from different fields, who are basically also experts in the in the uh, global music, and uh, from the economic mm-hmm. perspective, from the um, social perspective, from the you know injustice, and so on. We we tend we tend to love this idea of sort of the crossover artist. Sometimes within to to American esque genres like country and dance mm-hmm. music or something, but. But you know we tend uh, we tend to reward the cro- the crossovers. Let's say Shakira, for example, or Mark Anthony as like these Latin superstars that made a they made an English language album and that was a big new new hit for them. Um, and so that that I feel like that causes us to see mixing genres only from one perspective. It causes us to see it from well the Western perspective of. Uh, Western music plus this, right? So we're really interested in the opposite of that. We want to make sure that we're representing like everything that's not Western music 
what happens on that side of the intersection. Jake Herzog and Nicola Radon will lead the class Music and Globalization at the University of Arkansas next fall. They recently talked with Ozarks at Large's Kyle Kellams. More music on Ozarks at Large this week. On Friday's show, we will hear from the band Mildenhall, who has a show coming up this weekend in Fayetteville. Before that, on tomorrow's program, we will share with you the recent spring concert by the Fort Smith Chorale. The concert, Leave the World Behind, was recorded in late April at the First United Methodist Church in Fort Smith. And we will bring you the full concert Wednesday at noon and 7 p.m. on KUAF. Then, on Thursday, we will celebrate Mozart in the Museum. On our noon show, we'll share previous Mozart in the Museum highlights, as well as highlights from other classical music events recorded and broadcast live over the years by KUAF. Live radio broadcasts of classical music performances has become a highlight of Artisphere each year, and we're excited to relive some great performances by the Artisphere Festival Orchestra and the Dover Quartet. That's Thursday at noon. Then, for our 7 o'clock show on Thursday, it's this year's edition of Mozart in the Museum, broadcast live on KUAF from the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville. This year's program will be hosted by KUAS Lee Wood and Miroslava Panayatova. Miroslava. Miroslava. Sorry. There we go. That will help me. This year's program will be hosted by KUAS Lee Wood and Miroslava Panayatova from the University of Arkansas's Music Department. The Artisphere Festival Orchestra, under the baton of Maestro Corrado Rivaris, will perform selections from Mozart's Piano Concerto No. 23, Symphony No. 39, and more. That's Thursday evening, beginning at 7 o'clock on KUAF, your public radio station. It's the Community Spotlight on KUAF. I'm Pete Hartman. Today joined in the Nancy Blair studio by Ben Pollock and Brett Schulte. Uh, Brett is president. Ben is secretary of the University of Arkansas Education Association, Local 965. Ben, Brett, thank you all for coming in. Thank you Glad for having us. Well, thanks, Pete. It's great to be here. The Local 965 has been at the University of Arkansas since the 1960s. And uh, ever since then, the uh, local has been advocating on behalf of workers. Uh, that includes faculty as well as staff, support staff, custodial staff, facilities management. And uh, we are carrying on that tradition now with a new um, service we're offering to have student debt um, forgiven for um, a lot of our employees. I'll turn to you, Ben Pollock. There are kind of a few things already built in that students or even past students uh, can rely on. And I know that's what this workshop about. This is coming up May 19th. It's going to be on Zoom. What's going to be taking place during this workshop? Loan debt forgiveness for college loans has really been in place for a long time. The one that this webinar is focusing on the most has actually been around since 2007. George W. Bush signed it into law from Congress. This one, though, is coming to its end, and it's got some provisions that are expiring in October. That's why we're moving on this. The Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. If you've gotten a job, if you're working in that public service realm, there could be a, a benefit to that. That includes any government agency from municipal, county, state, federal government are eligible for this particular one if they have federal loans. And being complicated. It's only a certain number of loans. That's why we have this program, because it addresses every loan possible. Some of them get absolute forgiveness if you've been paying in for 10 years regularly while working for a public government entity. We're NEA, so we're focusing on teachers, professors, and support staff. 
the fact is college has gotten in exponentially more expensive in the past 20 years. We are seeing a lot of students now and, and for some time um, beginning to bail on college because of how expensive it is. And when they begin to see that debt accumulate, they panic. And then they're left with the worst of both worlds where they have the debt, but they don't have the degree. Student loan forgiveness is really going to present uh, a new path for a bright future for a lot of people. Um, a lot of people who've already gone through the system and who are facing tens and tens of thousands of dollars of debt. Uh, what I think that this program is really going to offer people, this webinar um, that's been set up, we, we have a national representative from NEA coming to host this, um, who's an expert on how all this works, is explain that this system is going to offer one-on-one -on -one help, consultation, guidance, and management of the student loan process. They're going to be taking people step-by-step, step, working with them to complete their documents and manage this massive federal red tape bureaucracy so they can finally get through the system that has been preventing people from utilizing it for so long. As Ben said, you know, this program started during the Bush administration. It's had a very, very low participation rate because of how complicated and terribly implemented it's been. Uh, what the NEA has done is partnered with a tech company that has the skills and the software to cut through the red tape so that people can actually participate and get their student debt forgiven, which was the intention all along. And we've had a lot of people... Uh, drop out of the student loan forgiveness program because they can't manage the system. It doesn't make any sense to them. It's repetitive. There's not much help. And it's enormously frustrating, and people end up still saddled with that debt. With NEA's program um, partnering with this savvy tech company, we're going to give people the chance to finally use the federal program as it was intended mm -hmm. to use. They're going to have an opportunity to get their debt forgiven and live better and literally richer lives without having to, you know, pay back this, uh, this enormous debt they've accumulated just trying to get an education. Uh, again, this webinar coming up May 19th, it begins at 5.30 p.m. You can get the Zoom link at this website. That's Arkansas965.org slash cut debt. Ben Pollock and Brett Schulte, thank you all for letting us know about this. Hope we can get the good information to the people who need it. Thank you, Pete. Thank you. The Community Spotlight and KUAF Public Radio. Your voice matters. This is 91.3 FM KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Gravit, and Greenwood. 91.3 KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF. Contributors to today's show included Rachel Sanchez-Smith, Daniel Carruth, and Kyle Callums. The Community Spotlight is produced by KUAF's Operations Manager Pete Hardman inside the Nancy Blair Operations Studio. Our conversation between Roby Brock, Jay Barth, and Robert Kuhn came to us through our partnership with Talk Business and Politics. You can find more news from around the state at their website, talkbusiness.net. Additional content for today's show came from the hardworking news team at KUAR Public Radio for Little Rock and Central Arkansas. I'm Matthew Moore. And I'm Timothy Dennis. I will be back with you tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. with a special edition of Ozarks at Large, presenting a recent concert from the Fort Smith Chorale. 
Then, I'll be with you Thursday at noon for a special celebration of Mozart in the Museum, and Matthew and I will return Friday for a new edition of Daily Ozarks at Large. And although the weekend is a little bit away, don't forget that Daniel Carruth will be with you Sunday morning at 9 for a new edition of Weekend Ozarks at Large. Remember that you can always catch up on past stories, interviews, or full episodes of Ozarks at Large at our website, ozarksatlarge.com. And while you're there, you can find links to easily share those stories, interviews, or full episodes via email or social media. We will end today's show with music from Emmy Lou Harris. She will perform Friday night in Bentonville as part of the Fresh Grass Festival happening at The Momentary. You can find tickets and more information at themomentary.org. Thank you so much for spending part of your Tuesday with us. Please take care of yourself, be well, and we'll talk again soon. Oh!